Hurricane Adalia made landfall early today on the Gulf Coast of Florida as a Category 3 storm. Now it's barreling through parts of Georgia as a weaker Category 1 hurricane. Coming up, we'll track the storm and the damage in its wake. It's Wednesday, August 30th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Narcan, the drug that reverses opioid overdoses, will soon be available over the counter at a cost of about $44. But is that too costly for some of those who need it? In the 1800s, there was widespread slaughter of the American buffalo, the bison. It had devastating consequences for indigenous groups. This was a disaster, right? It's a near extinction of a brilliant creature that societies relied on. Now members of the Blackfeet Nation of Montana are trying to bring back the Bryson. These stories and much more coming up, it's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Hurricane Idalia has moved into southeast Georgia after making landfall as a powerful Category 3 storm near Keaton Beach, Florida, this morning. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports hundreds of thousands of customers are without power as Florida officials begin to assess the damage. Hurricane Idalia's storm surge inundated Florida's Gulf Coast from the Big Bend to the Tampa Bay region. Search and rescue teams are now trying to get to people stranded by rising water in Steenhatchee and other largely rural areas near where the hurricane came ashore. Florida Emergency Management Director Kevin Guthrie says it's slow going as crews have to clear down trees and other debris in order to reach the hardest hit communities. We continue to uh, search, secure and stabilize areas that we can do that in. Uh, Most of what we're doing here in the Big Bend area is initial search. Guthrie says there are early reports of serious structural damage to homes and businesses. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says Idalia's moving fast in his state, but he says there are several counties seeing wind gusts of up to 90 miles an hour and several inches of rain is possible before it's over. There's been a heavy impact in South Georgia with heavy rainfall and heavy winds. I know most of the people across the state of Georgia will not feel the impact of the storm, but for those that were in uh, the, the line of the storm, it is very hard hitting. He says flash flooding has downed trees and knocked out power to a half million customers in uh, Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. A federal judge has found former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani liable for defaming two election workers in Georgia. As a member of then-President Trump's legal team in 2020, Giuliani falsely claimed the two election workers had committed voter fraud. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE has more. Giuliani promoted a video supposedly showing mother-daughter election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss pulling a suitcase of ballots from under a table in Atlanta. Investigators determined the claim was false, but Giuliani kept spreading it. Freeman and Moss received death threats. Last month, Giuliani said he'd no longer contest that his claims had been false. Now, a judge has ruled in favor of the election workers by default, citing Giuliani's failure to turn over some evidence which he disputes. A trial is expected to determine any damages. Giuliani's also facing criminal charges in Georgia over 2020 election interference. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Preliminary closing numbers on Wall Street have green arrows. The Dow is up 38 points. 
It's up about a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq is ahead by 75 points. That's up more than a half percent, and the S&P 500 up 17. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is acting on Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to ban tents from the part of the city known as Mass and Cass. At the afternoon meeting today, Council President Ed Flynn assigned the ordinance to the Council's Committee on Government Operations. The proposal would require police to give people notice about having to remove their tents. The city would offer them alternative shelter and storage for their belongings. The Council's Committee will hold a public hearing on the ordinance. For the first time since the start of the pandemic, Boston Public Schools have a full staff of bus drivers. The school's transportation head, Dan Rosengard, tells WBUR's Radio Boston that the number of drivers the city lost to retirement or lost to the private sector left a shortage for the schools over the past few years. But he says the district now has enough standby bus drivers to fill any gaps. Our aim is to have enough of those drivers on hand where if a bus is running late in the afternoon, we want to be able to deploy a standby driver to go cover that second trip in the afternoon. In these past few years, we have not been in a point where we're able to do that. Last year, Boston schools launched a program to pay for commercial driver's license certification to boost the hiring pool. Some streets around Harvard Square and Cambridge remain closed after a fire broke out in a manhole this morning. The explosion in the manhole on Brattle Street closed Harvard Square to car traffic and most foot traffic earlier today. JFK Street has reopened now. No injuries were reported from the explosion. So far, we don't know the cause either. Hurricane Adalia may have made landfall in Florida, but the storm is affecting travel here in Boston. So far, high winds and rain from the storm have led to 41 flight cancellations and nearly 240 delays in and out of Logan. Adalia made landfall this morning in the Florida Panhandle as a Category 3 hurricane. It is now in Georgia. One day after the New England Patriots cut backup quarterbacks Bailey Zappi and Malik Cunningham, both are returning to the Pats practice squad. But the Patriots still don't have a backup quarterback for Mac Jones on the 53-man active roster. The Patriots open the regular season September 10th in Foxborough against the Philadelphia Eagles. 77 degrees now. Some of the clouds have moved out. We should have mainly clear skies overnight tonight, about 60 for a low. Tomorrow's sunshine that could last the day, only about 70 for a high, though. Friday, pretty much the same. Mostly sunny, right about 70 degrees tops. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How do you make a life-changing or possibly life-saving decision to leave where you live? Well, that's a choice many people have had to make in Florida this week as Hurricane Idalia bore down on the state before it made landfall early this morning. Well, I'm I'm afraid we won't have a business to go back to when we go down there to check out the damage. That is Daniel Hicks, who did heed an evacuation order that was mandatory. He owns a fishing and vacation rental in Horseshoe Beach, south of where the storm made landfall in the early hours of the morning. I had no hesitation in leaving. No, we, we knew the storm was going to be bad. So we were packing things up and securing things there to prepare for the storm. But other residents have hesitated. Joshua Keith of Panacea, Florida, was under a voluntary evacuation order before Adalia made landfall. When our All Things Considered producers asked if he'd left his home? No, I did not because I'm, you know, I'm in decent health and I watch the tides 
and, you know, where the hurricane's going to hit and all that. And as for why he stuck around? I don't let fear make my decisions for me. I study and make an educated uh, choice to go or stay. Tara Rawson owns farmland in Mayo, Florida. That's a bit more inland from the Gulf Coast. It was still in the hurricane's path, and she also decided to stay put. We are Floridians, and we are, you know, used to hurricanes. She's aware of the risks of staying. I feel like it's a complete miracle that every everybody is good and safe. Back in Panacea, Joshua Keith says the unpredictability of a storm's path and keeping up with the flood of information that can come from news and government officials can make decisions on whether to evacuate even more difficult. People could be educated better on how to understand what's actually going to occur in your area versus someplace that's like 80 miles from here that's getting hit harder. What you're hearing What you're hearing from Florida residents about their decisions prompted me to wonder how do authorities make the call over whether, over when to issue an evacuation order. To help answer that, let's bring in former FEMA administrator Craig Fugate. We have caught him in Gainesville, Florida. Mr. Fugate, I hope you are surviving the, the wind and storm down there. Yeah, we didn't get near the damage they're seeing in other parts of the state. Yeah. So walk me through the process for people who are in parts of the state where the storm has hit or maybe about to hit. How do you decide when to tell people, you got to go, you got to go now? Well, it's based upon a lot of work we do outside of hurricane season. The National Weather Service, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and FEMA work very closely with states to establish areas that are vulnerable from storm surge. Mm -hmm. Uh, They map out the communities, how many people live there, the road networks, and how long it would take for people to get out of those areas when they say it's time to go. They use the term clearance time, but it's really from the time they make a decision to the last car is to safety. Yeah. Uh, and they factor in traffic's going to be bad. They're going to factor in, you know, that this is going to take time and how far people need to go. And yeah. so that's what they're doing. They have their tables built based upon their population. You know, some of these small towns, they can evacuate in less than 12 hours. You know, some of our communities like the Florida Keys could take two days to evacuate. Each one of these communities have this information that's been provided by FEMA and the Weather Service and Hurricane Center to provide that. So they're watching storms. When they get that information, they know they have to make a decision. How accurate a science is it? Well, I think there's a tendency when you see all this data, you think there's a lot of precision. And the reality is we have good basic information about populations, evacuation times, what the roads will do. What we have to also factor in is human behavior. People tend not to want to evacuate at three o'clock in the morning. So they do better when they have time, it's daylight. And I think that's one of our challenges because people are saying, hey, the sun's shining, I don't see any problem. Why should I go now? That's what I think the challenge is to communicate. In some of our communities, it takes more than a day to evacuate. And if people don't go when that sun is shining, if they wait for the storm to get there, it may be too late. It may be too late. I'm looking county by county in Florida. Um, Some of them, Pasco County, Gulf County, to name a couple, they have mandatory evacuation orders for some residents, voluntary for others. How do you make that call? Well, they look at what are the likely impacts. Uh, So again, 
these evacuation zones are not just one. They're based upon different levels of storm surge. And parts of the counties have very distinct geographical areas that will flood very easily and don't flood hardly at all. So you just don't want to say everybody's got to go. You want to say who's at the greatest risk. Yeah. But and the reality is when I hear the word evacuation, I don't really hear mandatory or, or volunteer. I hear evacuation the higher ground. Yeah. Um, yesterday on this program, we heard from one guy, a business owner in St. Petersburg Beach. We caught him as he was filling up sandbags. He said, look, in the past, I have heeded evacuation orders. And when I came back, my neighborhood was fine. It was bone dry. So this time I'm going to stay put. How do you weigh the risk of crying wolf? Well, this is the challenge because the area of impact could be hundreds of miles, yet we know that the greatest impacts will be where that center of circulation crosses for storm surge. And if you wait too long till you're certain, you run out of time. And in many cases, it's, uh, you know, historically less than 25% of the areas that are put into evacuation orders actually get the devastating damages. But if we got to go earlier, there's going to be less precision in the forecast. If we wait till we have certainty, it will be too late. Have you learned anything from your years in this business in terms of helping people to evacuate? I'm thinking there are plenty of people who are in hurricane-prone areas who may hear an evacuation order and just be stubborn. No, I'm not going. But a lot of people have reasons not to evacuate. Maybe they don't have anywhere to go or they don't have money to finance this or they face language barriers, all kinds of things. Yeah, this goes back to what we do before storms and, and again, working with uh, local and state uh, agencies to make sure that there are plans in place for people who don't have transportation. You know, people say, I don't have money for a hotel or motel. Well, we understand that. That's why, you know, we're opening up the public shelters. Uh, but I think what we need to understand is it's important that we give them clear information. And I think we sometimes sanitize the terms. We talk about storm surge. Most people, if they haven't been through it, have no earthly idea what that means. They think it's like a high tide. The way people die in storm surge is they drown or they're crushed by debris like cars and boats and other large objects battering their homes. And that's the risk. This isn't about, you know, we're trying to you know, use all this nice government uh, terminology. It's like we need to tell people you drown or you're crushed if you're in these areas when the storm hits and you didn't get out in time. I'm sure it's such a fine line, though, between being, as you put it, brutally honest and not wanting to sow panic. I haven't seen this ever so panicked. I think that's the most overrated risk that people are afraid we're going to panic people. And quite honestly, I'd like to get some people panicked to get them out of these areas so they don't drown. That is former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate speaking with us from Gainesville, Florida. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Narcan will be available over-the-counter at U.S. pharmacies as soon as next week. That's the nasal spray that can reverse an overdose. The company that makes the drug is shipping it out today. From member station WBUR, Deborah Becker reports it's the first time Narcan will be available nationwide without a prescription. The company that makes Narcan, Emergent Biosolutions, is shipping out hundreds of thousands of two-dose packages for over-the-counter and online sales. Emergent Senior Vice President Paul Williams says this follows FDA approval of over-the-counter Narcan sales to try to stem rising overdose deaths. When you think about the opioid crisis continuing to get worse, the number of opioid-related deaths continuing to increase, especially in the last couple of years, expanding access 
for Narcan to be much broader to folks is critically important. Narcan is the brand name for the drug naloxone, which can reverse an opioid overdose in minutes. Generic versions of naloxone are expected in stores next year. Major retailers Walgreens, Rite Aid, and CVS Health all say Narcan will be available in their stores and online in September. They also say pharmacists will be on hand to explain how to identify an overdose and when to administer the spray. The suggested price for consumers for a two-dose carton is $44.99, a price that some say is expensive. Sheila Vicaria is with the Drug Policy Alliance. For some people, $44 is a small price to pay to have access to the medication, but there are, of course, going to be people for whom $44 is out of reach. The suggested price is less for purchasers in the so-called public interest market, such as municipalities and nonprofits that distribute Narcan to the public for free. An FDA study says in 2021, most of the 17 million doses of naloxone that were distributed in the U.S. were by non-retail groups. Kevin Roy with Shatterproof, a national nonprofit fighting addiction, says free doses are still needed. We can't make the mistake of assuming that the problem is solved because it's available over the counter. So it is a tool in, in the toolbox to solving the crisis, but it certainly is not the only one that's important. Roy also says resources are still needed for addiction medication and treatment. Before this, Narcan was available only by prescription, although some states allowed it to be sold at pharmacy counters at a customer's request. Some insurers say they will still cover the cost of the spray. Last year, the U.S. set a record, reporting more than 109,000 opioid overdose deaths. For NPR News, I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 20 minutes, Barbie is now the highest grossing Warner Brothers movie in the studio's history, and it's broken a few more records so far, at least 17 of them. That story is coming up. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. An up day on Wall Street today. The Dow gained a tenth of a percent. S&P rose nearly four-tenths of a percent to finish above 4,500. The Nasdaq picked up more than a half percent. An annual analysis by Bankrate says Boston's average ATM fees for out-of-network withdrawals was $4.24. Atlanta had the highest rate of the area studied, $5.33. Out-of-network fees typically include a fee to the ATM's owner and a fee to the bank. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Some of the clouds have moved on out. Tonight should be beautiful. Clear skies, about 60 degrees for a low, maybe some light breezes tonight. Then for tomorrow, lots of sunshine, about 70 degrees for a high. Friday could be the same thing, mostly sunny skies, right about 70 degrees tops. 
This is WBUR, 77 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Biden administration is trying to fundamentally shift how the federal government allocates money for things like clean energy, transit, and affordable housing. The goal is to direct that funding specifically to communities facing high levels of pollution and health problems. So how do agencies determine who qualifies? Well, some researchers and advocates are concerned that the government is ignoring one of the most relevant criteria. NPR's Shema Bayram is here with us to explain. Hi, Shema. Hi, Ari. So what is the Biden administration's goal here? So, Ari, there are a handful of new laws focused on climate initiatives and infrastructure. And together, they include a ton of money for things like clean transit, affordable housing, and clean energy development. And the Biden administration wants to make sure that money goes to the places that need it the most. These are communities that may live near polluting industries or have higher rates of asthma, in part because of that pollution. It also means communities that are at most risk from the effects of climate change, like flood or wildfire risks. So we're talking billions of dollars. uh, And one big question is, how do you figure out which communities qualify? So how is the administration determining which communities should benefit? So the administration's actually developed this tool. It's called the Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool. And basically, it's an interactive map. Anyone can go onto this map online, um, and you can plug in an address or zip code, and it spills out all of this data. For example, I searched for Binghamton, New York, where I grew up. I could see how income and rates of asthma and life expectancy were really different depending on where you lived in the city. The map also includes a ton of other stuff, like the share of homes that are likely to have lead paint in them, or access to transit or amount of green space. Agencies are supposed to use all these different indicators to decide where to target their funding. But one indicator they aren't taking into account is race. And researchers and advocates say that's a blind spot. Right. I know from NPR's own reporting that black and brown communities in the U.S. tend to bear the brunt of environmental and health risks. That's exactly right. Here's Ana Baptista. She teaches environmental policy at the New School. Race, even more so than income, um, tends to be a driving factor in disparities of environmental pollution. For instance, studies have shown that Black Americans suffer disproportionately from air pollution regardless of their income level. That's because many of these health and environmental problems are a direct result of racist housing policies that mean Black communities are more likely to be located near polluting highways or industries. Advocates say it's a mistake to try to address and fix those historical wrongs without taking race into account. Here's Manuel Salgado from We Act for Environmental Justice. I think trying to account for the problems that race and racism have caused in this nation without addressing, uh, without acknowledging race is like trying to solve it with two arms tied behind your back. And a recent study found that if you use this tool without taking race into account, you may not be able to address these disparities or could even make them worse. 
If the experts seem to agree that race is an important factor to consider, why isn't the federal government doing it? Basically, they're worried about legal challenges. The U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that affirmative action in universities is illegal, which makes many people worry that any government program that takes race into account could be legally challenged. When I asked the administration about this, they gave me a written statement saying that they acknowledge that communities of color suffer disproportionately from environmental and health burdens. And they think this tool will still direct resources into the communities that need it most, even if it doesn't explicitly take race into account. Now, legal scholars I spoke to say the White House isn't wrong to worry, but it sets a concerning precedent. Here's Alatunde Johnson at Columbia Law School. Caring about racial inequality is not unconstitutional. Um, And there's um, nothing in the opinions that say that. Johnson says she understands the administration's worries, but there's nothing yet legally preventing the government from considering race. Sure, they might face lawsuits if they do, but communities of color could lose out on their share of these historic investments if they don't. That's NPR's Shema Byram. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ari. The band Stars of the Lit often made songs that developed very slowly, without words. They were masters of what is known as ambient music. For many admirers, the ambient music created by Stars of the Lid conveyed deep emotional weight. Last weekend, the duo announced that one of its members, Brian McBride, had died. He was 53. NPR Music's Lars Gottrich told us about what composer Brian McBride helped to create. Stars of the Lid started in Austin, Texas in 1993. Brian McBride and Adam Wiltsey both loved Brian Eno. They loved the Estonian composer Ervo Pert. They loved obscure film composers and the English band Talk Talk. And they wanted to figure out how to make that mishmash of ideas come together. They liked to use guitars that didn't sound like guitars, so they would process them through lots of electronics and computers. They would take recordings of household objects and manipulate them Uh, whether it be a refrigerator or their pet dog, for example. And then they would mix these things all together very meticulously over months and even years to get a perfect place for you to sit inside of. Throughout the 90s, Stars of the Lid put out some pretty incredible records. But in the early 2000s, they put out a pair of records that I think reshaped how listeners thought of ambient music. In 2001, there was the tired sounds of Stars of the Lid, and in 2007, the album called And Their Refinement of the Decline. Brian McBride and Adam Weltsy together, they started thinking back to the classical records that they grew up on. And they started thinking in terms of traditional composition as opposed to this dense layering that ambient music is known for. They're bringing in strings. Often the melodies were slow and required a lot of patience. But if you spent time with these records, and these records are long, 
You're rewarded with this not only depth of sound, but depth of emotion. I only got to see Stars at the Lid once in 2008, and everybody just sat on the floor and just let the waves of sound wash over them. And, you know, at a certain point, I think I turned around and I, there wasn't a dry eye on in the audience. And that was the thing. That's what Stars of the Lid was and still is. It's this idea that you can bring whatever ideas, whatever burdens, whatever joys that you have to this music that is wordless, and you can embrace your own narrative within it. That was Lars Gottrich from NPR Music, remembering Brian McBride, one half of the ambient duo Stars of the Lid, who died at the age of 53. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, Red Sox are looking to avoid a three-game sweep by the Astros. Two teams are playing the final game at Fenway Park right now. It's the top of the second inning with no score. Red Sox outfielder Jaron Duran today underwent successful foot surgery. Tonight, the New England Revolution hosts the New York Red Bulls. Kickoff in Foxborough is at 7.30. And Boston will soon be getting a women's pro hockey team. The newly formed professional women's hockey league says Boston will get one of the first six teams. Others will go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, New York, and then up north to Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto. The Boston team's name and host rink have yet to be announced. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Long after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded in passing his massive judicial reform law, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still protesting what they see as a threat to Israeli democracy and their personal freedom. Now those protests are including the rights of Arab Israelis too. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Hurricane Idalia unleashes its fury on Florida and Georgia, swamping a wide stretch of coast, making landfall as a Category 3 hurricane this morning with destructive winds and life-threatening storm surge. NPR's Bobby Allen is in Florida and reports on the damage he's seen. I've been driving west on back roads trying to make my way to the Big Bend area where the eye of Idalia passed through, and it's been a pretty hairy journey. About every 50 feet or so, there's a heap of downed trees and power lines. I've been trying to maneuver around them the best I can, but I've already been towed out once by a local after I was stuck in a mud pit. Um, the cleanup effort is very much underway here, though, across North Florida, but there is a long way to go, and hundreds of thousands of people here remain without power, and many, many roads are unpassable. The storm has since weakened to a Category 1 as it now threatens communities as far up as North Carolina. More than 400,000 customers in Florida and Georgia have lost power. In Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell froze for the second time in just over a month at a news conference today at a local Chamber of Commerce forum. 
From Louisville Public Media, Sylvia Goodman reports on the senator's recent health concerns. McConnell froze in the middle of answering questions from the media. A reporter asked the influential senator whether he intended to run again in 2026. McConnell appeared unable to speak for several seconds before an aide stepped in to ask if he heard the question. After about half a minute of not answering the posed question, he told his aides that he was fine and continued with other questions. He seemed to have trouble hearing questions posed by reporters as well. He was eventually led away from his podium. McConnell appeared to have a similar episode in late July. This latest attack raises more questions about the senator's health after a fall earlier this year that left him with a concussion. A McConnell spokesperson said in a statement that he felt lightheaded during the press conference. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Another offshore wind developer is trying to scrap initial plans for a wind farm off Martha's Vineyard. South Coast Wind is offering to pay utilities $60 million to terminate its current contracts. The company has been saying for months the project is no longer financially viable under its contract terms due to economic changes. The State Department of Public Utilities would still need to approve the termination of the contracts. Another company, Commonwealth Wind, had its contract termination agreement approved by state regulators last week. The Healy administration is putting out a request for proposals for its fourth and largest offshore wind project. It's looking for 3,600 megawatts of energy generated by offshore wind power. That's enough for a quarter of the state's annual electricity demand. Bids are due at the end of next January. The state is making more than $31 million in climate resiliency funds available to help communities combat climate change. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll announced the funding today in Stockbridge. She says Western Mass was hit especially hard this year by heavy rain and flooding, and local governments know best what their communities need. Green infrastructure installation, open space preservation, tree planting. Hooray! Who loves trees? We all do, right? Heat mitigation, among many others. And frankly, communities know how to do this best. A total of 79 projects and 56 communities are being funded through the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program. The defrocked Roman Catholic Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has had sexual assault charges against him dismissed. Today, a judge in Dedham ruled that the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., is not competent to stand trial. McCarrick's lawyers say he has severe dementia. The 93-year-old had been charged with molesting a 16-year-old boy during a wedding reception at Wellesley College in 1974. McCarrick's lawyers maintain he's innocent. He faces a second case in Wisconsin involving the same alleged victim. We now know when the recently opened Green Line extension to Somerville's Union Square will temporarily close. The state's Department of Transportation says the Union Square branch will close for 25 days starting September 18th. This will allow crews to make repairs on the Squires Bridge. Shuttle buses will not be running. Riders are instead encouraged to take one of four bus routes. In the forecast, we are due for a nice, clear, dry night tonight. Breezy with temperatures just about 60 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday, plenty of sunshine. High temperatures in the low to mid-70s tops. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For more than 10,000 years, many people in what's known as North America relied on bison. 30 million of the creatures stretched from Canada down to Mexico, and then they were hunted nearly to extinction. Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, looks at how that devastated some indigenous nations and how those effects are still felt today. To people like Irvin Carlson's ancestors, the bison or the American buffalo were family. It was part of their way of life. Irvin Carlson is a member of Blackfeet Nation in Montana. Buffalo were, they were everything to us. Well, actually our economy, buffalo was our lodging, our clothing, our food, tools, parts of our ceremonies. That's how we survived, was on buffalo and with buffalo. A few years ago, Don Fair, an economist at University of Victoria in Canada, was working with a couple of other economists trying to estimate how well-off Indigenous North Americans were in the 19th century. We knew about this data that was collected in a very ambitious initiative by Franz Boas, who's a famous physical anthropologist, on the biological height of about 15,000 Native Americans across North America. And when Don looked at that height data, they saw that the people who hunted bison had a massive height advantage in the 19th century. They're among the tallest people in the world, taller than Europeans or other indigenous groups who weren't reliant on bison. About two centimetres on average uh, taller. About an inch. About an inch taller than the yeah. European counterparts. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. No, no, no. They, they, these were <laughs> very tall people. That height was because of good nutrition in their childhoods. But those advantages started to slip dramatically in the 1870s. In 1871, there was a change in European tanning technology that all of a sudden made bison hides commercially viable in Europe when they hadn't actually been before. And uh, settler hide hunters flooded to the Great Plains, uh, Rocky Mountain regions, where the bison were in the thousands and slaughtered the bison in the millions. And in some areas of the country, there was more violence. You might know the Indian Wars. Um, Once the U.S. military realized what was happening to the nations when they were losing the bison, uh, the American military started to participate in its slaughter as well. And then it became an intentional destruction. So depending on the region, we went from millions of bison to virtually none or a few hundred within 5, 10, or 20 years. So this is a very dramatic change. Livelihoods for nations like the Blackfeet vanished. Some communities had to eat their horses. They ate rotting food. Some even ate old clothing. There was increased child mortality, signs of maternal distress. People born after the slaughter and during the slaughter started to be much shorter than their ancestors who had relied on the bison. And in fact, by the end of the slaughter, the indigenous people actually lost their entire height advantage The U.S. government would end up providing food and other support and encouraged nations like the Blackfeet to get into farming. The nations themselves also collected bison bones to sell for fertilizer. But Don and their co-authors found that these initiatives didn't bring bison-reliant people back to where they were economically compared with other indigenous groups. This was a a disaster. <laughs> I mean, you know it's a disaster, right? It's a near extinction of a brilliant creature that societies relied on. That beyond that, you could actually just see in the data the impact it was having on Indigenous people. Bison nations today, their income is at least 25% lower than that of all other Indigenous nations in the U.S. 
There were mitigating factors like access to credit. Don and their co-authors found that nations with banks nearby seemed to fare better by allowing them to reinvest. Back in Blackfeet Reservation, there's hope for the future. Irvin's been working to bring back bison. They have a herd of about 800 that are mostly fenced in. It's a big thing with us nowadays, and even helping economically, of them helping taking care of us in a new way as they did in our beginning. Earlier this year, Irvin helped with an effort to release bison to roam freely in the mountains. That was the greatest success. That meant a lot to me. It was a very moving time for a lot of our people that were there after so many years. Seeing that release back onto their homelands was very, very emotional and very welcomed. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. The pink queen of the box office is not showing signs of fatigue. Get that Barbie! As NPR's Netta Ulibi tells us, Barbie is now the highest grossing Warner Brothers movie in the studio's history. Okay, so Barbie beat Harry Potter and The Deathly Hallows Part 2. Harry Potter. That had been Warner Brothers' highest grossing movie, not adjusted for inflation. You have fought valiantly. To be clear, Warner Brothers' number two movie was Aquaman. You thought yourself worthy. You thought yourself a king. You dishonor this place with your presence. Aquaman might have benefited from a few of the mermaids that are in the Barbie movie. Aquaman made $1.14 billion. Barbie, in just a few months, has made millions more. I'm a Barbie girl. Let's just look at a few of the records Barbie has broken so far. There are at least 17 of them. Biggest opening of 2023, biggest opening by a female director. Highest opening for a non-sequel. Biggest opening for stars Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling. They play Barbie and Ken. Biggest opening ever for a film based on a toy. Highest grossing film directed by a woman. That long list does not count all the other little records like biggest opening for a movie without IMAX. But wait, IMAX is coming. Barbie gets a limited IMAX release next month. This weekend, the great pink one is expected to pass the Super Mario Brothers movie at the box office. That will make Barbie the highest grossing movie of 2023 and the 15th biggest movie of all time. It might even be on track for the top 10. This is Barbie's world. We just live here. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Turn the rhythm up, don't you wanna just come along for the ride? 
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This summer, New England hasn't seen the kind of heat waves that have gripped other parts of the country. But even moderately hot days can affect our health. An innovative pilot project is trying to address the problem by sending heat alert emails to health clinics in Massachusetts and six other states. WBR's Martha Biebinger reports as part of our series with the New England News Collaborative, Beyond Normal. In Boston, the first heat alert popped into inboxes on June 1st. It was 83 degrees that day, still not hot enough to trigger an official heat warning. But in Boston, when temperatures rise past the mid-70s, Heat-related hospitalizations and deaths rise, too. Dr. Rebecca Rogers, a primary care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance, says it's particularly dangerous early in what doctors call the heat season. People are quite vulnerable because their bodies haven't yet adjusted to heat. For Rogers, that first email and another that arrived as temperatures rose in July bumped heat to the forefront of her conversations in the exam room. And the emails suggest Rogers prioritize heat planning with specific patients. Older individuals, outdoor workers, individuals with chronic medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. Also young athletes training on sweltering fields and people without air conditioning. Okay. Go ahead, you go straight through there. Her patient, Luciano Gomez, works construction. If you were getting too hot at work and maybe starting to get sick, Do you know some things to look out for? No. So Rogers describes signs of heat exhaustion, dizziness, weakness, and sweating a lot. She hands Gomez some tip sheets she got with the email alerts. On one, a color band from pale yellow to dark gold is a sort of urine hydration barometer. So if your pee is dark like this during the day when you're at work, probably means you need to drink more water. An interpreter translates into Portuguese for Gomez, who's from Brazil. He knows heat, but he has questions about staying hydrated. Because here I've been addicted to soda. I'm trying to change to sparkling water, but I don't have too much knowledge on how much I can take of it. Yeah, sparkling water... You know, it's fine. As long as it doesn't have sugar, it's totally good. Rogers has her own questions. Should patients taking meds that make them pee more often take less of the drug when it's hot? There's no firm answer yet. And Rogers knows that being unable to cool down overnight can trigger a health crisis. But she isn't sure how to help patients who cannot afford an air conditioner or who don't have stable housing. Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States. This is Dr. Caleb Dresser, one of the people who sends the alerts. And it is set to be an increasing problem in the years to come as a result of climate change. Dresser works out of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Weather expertise comes from Climate Central, an independent source of climate science. Staff at 12 community health centers around the country are receiving alerts tailored to their location. In Portland, Oregon, for example, an early heat wave triggered an alert on May 14th. For the rest of the summer, alerts will only go out on the most excessively hot and humid days, so they don't become too routine. Andrew Pershing is with Climate Central. So what we're just trying to say is, like, you really need to go into heat mode now. Pershing and colleagues are tweaking the language of alerts this summer, looking for messages that will change behavior. Because studies show many people don't take heat warnings seriously. Ashley Ward studies heat policy at Duke and says that has to change. This is not your grandmother's heat. 
So we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. The pilot has limitations. Most clinicians are only discussing heat with patients who have appointments. They don't have a way to flag their higher risk patients or send them individual alerts at home. That's one possible improvement researchers may explore before next summer rolls around. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England all this week here on All Things Considered and on WBUR's Morning Edition. You can also check it out at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston, lacuchara.com. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. This is WBUR, and just like that, the Red Sox are losing. Sox and Astros are playing the final game of their three-game set at Fenway Park. It is 3-0, top of the third, with the Astros in the lead. 77 degrees in Boston. Should have a nice, clear, breezy night tonight. Temperature's about 60. And then sunshine on the way for tomorrow, maybe Friday as well, with high temperatures in the low to mid-70s. 77 degrees in the Boston area. The time is 449. An Italian rap star is using his fame to raise money and awareness for the thousands of migrants who make the dangerous journey from North Africa to Europe. I have friends, friends of friends who died in the Mediterranean Sea. So why is the Italian government blocking a boat he donated from saving drowning migrants? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More than half of U.S. counties now only have one newspaper, or none at all. It is estimated that one-fifth of Americans live in these so-called news deserts. Studies show this information crisis is hurting voter turnout and civic engagement, and it's contributing to divisions in America. From member station KERA in Dallas, Kaylee Broussard reports on the largest news desert in Texas. Newsmakers in Arlington, Texas, often bristle when their city is called a suburb. It's one of the largest mid-sized cities in the country with some 400,000 residents. It's home to the Dallas Cowboys and the Texas Rangers. But it gets overshadowed by its big neighboring cities. It's wedged between Dallas, which has a population of 1.3 million, and Fort Worth, home to almost 1 million people. O.K. Carter watched Arlington transform as a former newspaper reporter, editor, and publisher. It ends up being sort of a hub for tourism and visitation, not just for the state, but for the entire area. Meanwhile, you've got an entire city that's trying to grow and compete with other places. Two newspapers reported on that growth in the 90s. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram and Dallas Morning News both launched Arlington publications. They competed fiercely for scoops, readers, and ad dollars. But eventually, the Arlington Morning News and Arlington Star-Telegram got absorbed into their parent papers. Deep cuts to the newspaper industry meant less and less Arlington coverage. Today, those papers cover Arlington sports, crime, and its food scene. But Carter says the city is missing local government coverage that's vital to their community. You'll go to a city council meeting and there will be no report there. You will go to a school board meeting for a school district with 65,000 students and there'll be 
no reporter there. Cities like Arlington are considered news deserts. Penelope Muse Abernathy is a leading expert on the phenomenon. She says they're commonly found in rural and more suburban cities, even those outside major areas. We see this in New York City, for example. We see this around Los Angeles. The news gets dominated in these major metro markets by the television stations and by the newspapers which tend to be more national and regional in focus. Abernathy is a journalism professor at Northwestern University. Her research has found that over half of U.S. counties have either one newspaper in town or zero newspapers. Tarrant County, which includes Arlington, gets coverage from multiple regional papers. But staff cuts over the past couple decades mean those papers have fewer reporters, which means there's less coverage of vital local news. Here's Abernathy. One of the problems is that a tax increase a zoning dispute may not be even of relevance to the journalists who are covering the city at the regional papers. And so you end up being uninformed. Neither the Dallas Morning News nor the Star-Telegram has a full-time Arlington reporter. The Dallas Papers executive editor, Catrice Hardy, wrote in an email that its reporters cover Arlington as part of their beats, as they do other cities in North Texas. Studies, including one from Northwestern, have linked the decline of local journalism to lower voter turnout, higher government spending, and increased polarization. Arlington citizen groups and individuals have tried to fill the gap themselves. A former city council member founded Arlington Today magazine, which publishes positive stories about the city and promotes business. Yale Youngblood is the magazine's former editor. We tried to celebrate advances, victories, whatever, in the community, in the city government, like new restaurants, new businesses. Hey, Arlington, let's take a look at your headlines. And the Arlington City government's communication team runs robust television and digital channels. Watch this year's budget video on the city's YouTube channel, which features a cooking show and the ingredients it takes in creating the proposed budget. Former editor O.K. Carter says these efforts aren't journalism, they're boosterism. Some of them may be trying to be fair, but they're always going to show you their best side. You're not going to see the negative things. You're not going to see the fights at the city council meeting. Nationally, a group of philanthropies, including the MacArthur Foundation, has recently launched a fundraising effort to put half a billion dollars into expanding and improving local news. But Abernathy says philanthropy, nonprofit, and digital startups have a long way to go to replenish local news. There's just no way national philanthropy or even community philanthropy can pivot that quickly in the short term and maybe not even in the long term. The United States has lost an average of more than two papers per week since 2005, despite increased funding from philanthropies. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Broussard in Arlington, Texas. Hollywood writers and actors are on strike, so are some hotel workers. Auto workers could be next. Even as contract negotiations hit impasse after impasse, labor unions have plenty of support across the country. NPR's Andrea Shu has the results of a new Gallup survey. This latest survey finds two-thirds of Americans approve of unions. That's down a few percentage points from last year, but it continues a trend that stands in sharp contrast to the last six decades. Lydia Saad, Gallup's director of U.S. Social Research, says it's due to the high visibility of unions over the past few years. 
the accumulation of labor battles that have been going on at places like Starbucks. At the same time, we've had Republicans push back on corporate America, so perhaps making them more sympathetic to organized labor. Now, there is still a lot of skepticism about unions. A third of respondents said they believe unions mostly hurt the U.S. economy. But Saad points out that's down from 2009, a year after the auto industry got bailed out in the depths of the Great Recession. 2009, you had a majority of Americans saying that unions mostly hurt the economy. One thing that's remained steady, support for workers themselves. In these David and Goliath battles, Saad says, Americans historically sympathize with labor. In the latest survey, Gallup found 72% side with the striking Hollywood writers over the Hollywood studios. And even more aside with the United Auto Workers, led by Sean Fain, over the Detroit automakers. And it's time, it's time to take back what's ours. Saad notes the strong support for labor unions is not being driven by personal connections as it was in the 50s. It's just definitely being driven by something else today and just these broader attitudes about worker rights or corporate wealth or whatever it may be. After all, only 10% of U.S. workers belong to unions today, the lowest on record. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. In October, people who have federal student loans will be expected to resume payments after a three-year pandemic pause. Though there's a big group of people who won't have to pay. That story tomorrow on Morning Edition on your radio, or you can try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR over at Fenway Park. You don't want to know. Red Sox and Astros are playing the final game of a three-game set. Sox have yet to score. It is now 6-0 Houston in the bottom of the third. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, down around 60 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine through the day, about 70 degrees for a high. It's 4.59. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Idalia is the strongest storm to make landfall in this part of Florida in over 100 years. The strong winds and massive storm surge of Hurricane Idalia have caused extensive damage in Florida's Gulf Coast. The hurricane has lost some power, but is still causing more damage in Georgia. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The latest is coming up. Rudy Giuliani is liable for defaming two Georgia election workers by repeatedly claiming the women were manipulating the 2020 ballots, a federal judge has ruled. Overnight, there was a coup in the Central African nation of Gabon. Military officers announced they had seized power and placed the president under house arrest after a questionable election. These stories and the forecast, also Wall Street numbers, are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Hurricane Idalia hit Florida's Gulf Coast as a Category 3 storm earlier this morning. Sarah Sowers of member station WUFT reports on the fears of business owners on the island city of Cedar Key. In Florida, insurance in flood zones is increasingly hard to come by. For residents and business owners in the Big Bend, where the peninsula meets the panhandle, the hurricane could be catastrophic. Michael Hawley is the owner of Cedar Key Pizza and Subs. It's in a 100-year-old building just two blocks from the water. Everything's uninsured, so, I mean, you can't get flood insurance here. So the business is uninsured, so yeah, there's fear. I mean, this could all be gone tomorrow. Um, And if it's not gone, the goal is to get open as soon as you can because people are going to need to eat. Forecasters say the storm surge is expected to continue rising even after the storm passes. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Sowers in Cedar Key, Florida. And as as Adalia moves east, it has just been downgraded to a tropical storm. NPR's Ping Wong reports recovery in Lahaina has reached a new phase, ending search and rescue there. All that's left for search and rescue is an FBI sweep of the ocean, four miles wide and 200 yards out from the coast of Lahaina. Three weeks after a wildfire that devastated the West Maui town, the cleanup efforts are starting. Richard Bisson, the mayor of Maui, says the community will be deeply involved. The county will champion the interests of our community with safety, with cultural and community priorities. The Environmental Protection Agency will comb through five square miles of ash to remove household hazardous waste like paints, pesticides, solar panels, and batteries. It's a process that could take several months. Ping Huang, NPR News. The U.S. says it is concerned about the situation in Gabon, where the military seized power in the latest military coup in Africa. NPR's Michelle Kellman reports the U.S. is consulting with partners on how to respond. A National Security Council spokesman says the U.S. has accounted for all of its embassy personnel and a small number of U.S. troops based in Gabon. Americans are being urged to shelter in place. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas Greenfield says diplomats are still trying to figure out exactly what's happening. But let me just say clearly we condemn uh, any efforts by uh, militaries to take uh, 
power by force. Military officers in Gabon say they have put President Ali Bongo under house arrest. That was just after the election commission announced that he had won a third term in a vote the opposition called fraudulent. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The government says the economy was still growing during the second three months of the year. The gross domestic product, the total output of goods and services within U.S. borders, expanded at a 2.1 percent annual rate. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 37 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A former sheriff's deputy is facing charges after he allegedly threatened to burn down the Plymouth County Courthouse. 43-year-old Joshua Ford of Kingston was indicted by a federal grand jury today. The indictment says Ford emailed about 140 people, mostly officers, last March. He urged them to arm themselves and burn down the courthouse. He also included a link to a video where he threatened to kill court security officers. Local law enforcement arrested him the day before, they say, he planned to carry out the attack. Massachusetts Medical Society is expressing concern about the mental health of young people. Society doctors say the start of the new school year can be especially stressful for children, so they've developed a new toolkit to help kids and parents navigate mental health concerns. Tufts Medical Center psychiatry resident Dr. Rachel Gomes Caceres says it can be beneficial. We have some resources for helping kids modulate their anxiety. We have other resources to help identify, you know, what mental health challenges and substance use challenges our kids facing, and then also some resources on how to find a professional. The kit is available on the Mass Medical Society's website. It was designed for use by school staff, parents, and students. A Tufts University community is mourning the death of a professor killed in a Newton bike accident this week. On Monday, 57-year-old Alex Bohm was hit by a UPS truck at the intersection of Bridge and Watertown Streets. He died at Brigham and Women's Hospital from his injuries. Indigenous Americans who once populated much of Western Mass are getting some of their homeland back. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll today announced some land on Monument Mountain in the Berkshires will be returned to the Stockbridge Muncie Mohegans. Tribe President Shannon Holsey says they're grateful to be home. It was the reclamation of our kinship systems, our governance systems, our ceremony and spirituality, our language, our culture, and our food and medicinal systems. Those are all based on our relationships to the land. Holsey says her ancestors are smiling about today's announcement. Forecast turned out to be a nice dry afternoon. Should have a clear night tonight, down around 60 for a low. Tomorrow, sunny. Should last the day, in fact, the sunshine should, with temperatures about 70 for a high. Friday, pretty much the same thing. Lots of sunshine, right about 70 degrees tops. 77 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A judge has ruled against Rudy Giuliani in a defamation lawsuit brought by two election workers he falsely accused of committing voter fraud. The ruling comes as Giuliani faces criminal charges for similar actions in a sweeping racketeering indictment against the former New York mayor, former President Donald Trump, and 17 others in Georgia. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler is covering the story. Hey, Stephen. Hey there. Tell us more about this defamation lawsuit. Um, Who brought it and what did Giuliani do to them? 
Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss are this mother-daughter election worker duo in Fulton County in Atlanta at the center of a bunch of conspiracies and attacks from Trump, Giuliani, and others who claimed without evidence they were counting fraudulent ballots in Georgia's presidential election that altered the outcome. Here's one of the accusations Giuliani made in a Georgia legislative hearing December 2020. Tape earlier in the day of Ruby Freeman and Shay Freeman Moss and one other gentleman quite obviously, surreptitiously passing around USB ports as if they are vials of heroin or cocaine. Now, Ari, in that particular video, they said they were passing a ginger mint to each other. Republican state officials in Georgia found no evidence of them altering the boat totals. And as Freeman testified to the House January 6th committee, they face life-altering threats and harassments because of these claims. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security, all because a group of people, starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay. That was Ruby Freeman speaking. Uh, the judge issued what is called a default judgment against Giuliani, holding him liable on claims of defamation and more. Uh, explain to us what that means. So basically, Rudy Giuliani hasn't been turning over any of the evidence through the normal legal process called discovery in this lawsuit. Now, he's called it, quote, punishment by process. But federal judge Beryl Howell offered a scathing rebuke of Giuliani's failure to comply with discovery, dinging him for, quote, donning a cloak of victimization that may play well on a public stage to certain audiences. Now, Giuliani's got to pay tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees for the election workers, on top of nearly $100,000 a judge previously ordered, and this still goes to trial. But instead of deciding if he defamed these election workers with those comments, the question now will be how much he has to pay him, pay them for what he did. And these false claims that Giuliani made are also central to the state racketeering case against former President Trump and others in Georgia. So explain how these two cases relate to each other. Absolutely. So Giuliani faces charges in Georgia for comments that he made about Freeman and Moss, including that clip we just heard accusing them of passing around USB drives like they were cocaine. Now, one of Donald Trump's felony charges he faces in this racketeering case also involves falsely calling Freeman a professional vote scammer, among other things about Georgia's election. And here's the thing, it's a central element to many of the charges and allegations in this racketeering case, including three people who face charges for allegedly trying to pressure Ruby Freeman to falsely confess to committing voter fraud. And it's very complicated because there's 19 different defendants, all with different legal strategies. But several experts that I've talked to say this particular defamation ruling and any evidence that Giuliani might eventually provide could be important for prosecutors in the racketeering case. That is Stephen Fowler of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Thank you. Thank you. To Florida now, where officials are starting to assess the damage from Hurricane Idalia. The Category 3 storm slammed into the Gulf Coast with 125 mile per hour winds. It left communities without power, many homes, many businesses underwater. The storm is now moving through Georgia and South Carolina. NPR's Bobby Allen has been following Idalia from Lake City, Florida. Hey there, Bobby. Hey, Mary Louise. So Idalia was a tropical storm and then it became a hurricane. We're back now to a tropical storm. As far as we can tell so far, how bad was Idalia? 
Yeah, I mean, it really depends on how we're measuring. So far, authorities have confirmed two storm-related deaths due to car crashes and hurricane conditions. Rescuers have been pulling dozens of people from flooded homes up and down the Gulf Coast. Kevin Guthrie is the director of Florida's Division of Emergency Management, and he says they're doing what they can for now. We continue to uh, search, secure, and stabilize areas that we can do that in. And one of the biggest challenges right now, Mary Louise, are widespread power outages. Some 270,000 customers in Florida alone are without power. That number's been fluctuating all day. In fact, the hotel I'm staying in is completely dark. So I had to find another place with a power generator in order to work and talk to you right now. Um, across town, uh, traffic lights are out. Trees and utility poles are toppled. Authorities are just scrambling to restore power, but it could take days or weeks or longer until the power comes back. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay, so tell me more about this part of Florida where you are. This is the part of the state known as the Big Bend. Yeah, that's right. So the Big Bend is part of northern Florida where the panhandle bends into the peninsula. It's very rural. It's not very populated. It's mostly marshy wetlands around pine forests dotted with poultry and cattle farms. I spent the whole day today driving through the Big Bend attempting to make my way to the coast where the storm came ashore, but it was not possible. About every 50 feet or so, I was encountering obstacle after obstacle, uprooted trees, broken power poles, down lines, stacks of debris, and power nowhere. At one point, a local with a pickup truck and a rope had to tow my car out of mud that I got stuck in. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad you ran yeah. into them. Um, is there anybody else out and about? I mean, are you able to talk to people as you attempt to drive around? Yeah, you know, there weren't that many people around. Most of what you can see driving around were electrical workers and tree cutting crews beginning the long and arduous task of clearing roads and resurrecting the power grid. But I did find two guys working on a generator on a porch, Tony Purpura and Bobby Hooper. Hooper said the wind from the storm was indeed fierce and rattled his home, but thankfully there was no major damage. But like so many others, he's going to be relying on a generator for a while, and he's trying to fix up another one he found in his garage for his friend Tony. It's going to be tough because we're going to be without a power for a week or two. So, I'm a mechanic. I have a shop back here, my own home business, and I'm fixing to try to get this generator for him running. So right now we're looking at a generator. You're going to try to get it up and running. How much electricity will this give you? Well, en enough to run his refrigerator. That really gives you a sense of, of what everybody there is facing these coming days. When might we have a better picture, Bobby, of, of how great a toll Idalia has taken? Yeah, you know, it's going to take a while. The storm is still moving across the southeast. It barreled into Georgia with winds of up to 90 miles per hour. There were pockets of very heavy rain and isolated tornadoes there. And as is always the case with hurricanes, flooding and storm surge is a major concern since that's how most people die in hurricanes. Uh, you know, along the coast, state troopers went door to door warning residents that the storm surge could reach as high as 16 feet. It's unclear how many hunkered down and how many evacuated, but Mary Louise search and rescue crews are now combing across the entire Gulf Coast up here, searching for bodies or people in distress. It's really going to be a long process. Bobby Allen reporting for us there from Lake City, Florida. And Bobby, um, thanks for that reporting and good luck getting those lights back on. Thanks. Appreciate it. Today, researchers in Switzerland unveiled a small drone that can outfly some of the best human competitors in the world. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports on how artificial intelligence powered the drone to victory. 
So real quick, here's where we're at with computers beating humans at their own games. In 1997, IBM's Deep Blue bested Garry Kasparov at chess. It attacks, you know, it finds the shortest cut to any weakness in your position. In 2016, Google built a program using artificial intelligence to beat the world's best player at the game of Go. Big congratulations once again to the, uh, to the AlphaGo team. New AI programs have also beaten humans at poker in several video games, but every one of these competitions has taken place on a board or at a desk. The computers haven't been able to beat us in the real world until now. That is the sound of a small quadcopter drone with an AI brain whipping its way around a race course. It flies through square fabric gates in a specific sequence, going up, flipping down, and sliding through turns in just seconds. It can pretty regularly fly the course faster than some of the best human drone pilots in the world. This AI drone race marks the very first time that an AI has actually beaten human in a human spot in a physical competition. Leonard Bowersfeld is a PhD student at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. He helped program the little drone. Actually, it kind of programmed itself. The team put it into a virtual version of the race course. It went around and around in virtual space for the equivalent of 23 days, practicing until it learned the best route. That means as fast as possible, and also all gates in the correct sequence. The drone bested its human rivals about 60% of the time the work appears in the journal Nature. Okay, but is this really such a big deal? Beating humans at chess felt momentous. Drone racing? Well, I didn't even really know it was a thing. Bowersfeld says this is a big step because for a computer, flying through the air is much more unpredictable than moving pieces on a chessboard. There's shifts in lighting, gusts of wind differences between batteries, between propellers, between the drones. There are so many things that change out there in the real world. It was actually a mix of AI and some more conventional programming that made the drone successful, most of the time anyway. For example, things go wrong if it gets an accidental bump from its rival. If that happens, it has no idea how to handle that and crashes. And it only works for the course it's been trained on. Put it in a new environment and it wouldn't have a clue what to do. Bowersfield says that's part of the reason this kind of technology can't be easily fashioned into a killer military drone. So don't worry, at least not yet. Still, the little drone does show that AI is beginning to make that jump from the virtual world into the real one, regardless of whether its human opponents are ready or not. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the suburbs outside Milwaukee have been reliably Republican for decades. Now those counties are swing districts in a swing state that could help decide the presidential election next year. That story and much more still to come. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Martha's Vineyard International Film Fest, September 5th through 10th at Martha's Vineyard Film Center, mvfilmfest.com, funded in part by the Mass Office of Travel and Tourism, and Release Wellbeing Center in Boston and Westboro. Experience their massages, facials, cold plunge tubs, steam rooms, and more during their membership drive September 8th to 10th. An update on Wall Street. The Dow gained a tenth of a percent. S&P rose nearly four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq picked up more than a half percent. 
Boston has the cheapest average ATM fees in the country. An annual analysis by Bankrate says Boston's average ATM fees for out-of-network withdrawals are $4.24. Atlanta had the highest rate of the area studied, $5.33. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Red Sox are losing 7-zip at Fenway Park in their final game of the series with the Astros. It's the middle of the fourth inning now. In the forecast, beautiful overnight tonight. Should be clear and dry, moonlit night with a super moon. Temperatures about 60 at the lowest. Tomorrow starts a string of beautiful days that could last into September. Sunny skies tomorrow, Friday, maybe for the Labor Day weekend as well. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's one of the biggest medical mysteries to emerge from the coronavirus pandemic. Why do some people get over COVID while others are plagued with chronic symptoms for months or even years? This week, researchers came together to take stock of the progress science has made towards understanding long COVID. NPR's Will Stone was there and joins us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hi. Hi, Ari. Why was this long COVID meeting a big deal? Yeah, this was really science in action. It's one of the first major gatherings of researchers from around the world focused on what's driving long COVID and potential treatments. It was held by the nonprofit Keystone Symposia. And because long COVID is such a wide ranging disease, many different manifestations affecting all kinds of organs and systems in the body, that's actually attracted researchers with all kinds of backgrounds. So. This was a chance for them to get in a room, in many cases to meet in person for the first time and share their findings, and try to chart a path forward. And what does that look like? It seems like we've been hearing for years that scientists are chipping away at this. Yeah, to be clear, Ari, there is still a lot of work to be done to understand the underlying causes of long COVID. There is no one test that a doctor can run and say, okay, you have long COVID. There isn't yet a single proven treatment for the condition. And I think hearing all of that can make things feel a bit hopeless, especially for the patients who are suffering from this condition. But I will tell you from being here the last few days, there's a lot of energy going toward this. And one scientist I spoke to in the hallway during presentations was Akiko Iwasaki. She's at Yale University. And she said it's a fine balance, you know, moving fast on research and still being deliberate. I totally understand how frustrated patients are. The reality of biomedical research is that it takes time. Even to get a protocol up and running, you have to get approval from the right regulatory agencies and all of that. So we're trying very, very hard to do this as soon as possible. So, Will, where are scientists exactly in the process of getting to the root of long COVID? So to sum it up, I'd say the scientific journey with long COVID started with first simply recognizing it's a real medical condition that needs to be studied, then describing it, defining it, then generating theories about what could be driving the symptoms. And scientists have now gathered quite a bit of evidence on these different theories. 
some of the prominent ones that have been discussed at this meeting, uh, there's viral persistence. That's the idea that the coronavirus or parts of the virus hang out in the body after the acute illness. There's also lots of evidence showing immune dysfunction, autoimmunity in some patients. Uh, another is that it seems some viruses people had before COVID, uh, specifically the Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono, are being reactivated and the body is actually responding to that. There's also big interest in the consequences of inflammation, in particular, the role of small blood clots uh, called microclots that can be observed in long COVID patients. So all of these theories are at play. That's so many different theories. Any sense of which one is most likely? Not yet. And it's important to note that none of these are necessarily mutually exclusive. Some can be interrelated. There's evidence some could be happening in some patients, not others. In fact, there was interesting research presented here indicating there could be differences between what's going on in female patients versus male patients. So uh, the bottom line is scientists have these different lines of evidence about possible mechanisms. Which of those are actually driving the symptoms? We don't really know yet. And of course, the answer will have implications for treatment. Right now, treating long COVID is all over the place. There are now some targeted clinical trials starting up that will help test some of these theories about what's behind the disease. NPR's Will Stone reporting from Santa Fe. Thanks. Thank you. You know that old phrase, often applied to someone not as young as they used to be, that they are no spring chicken? Well, it could be fairly applied to Peanut. She is 21 years young, lives on a farm in Waterloo, Michigan, and we learned via the Washington Post that Peanut, who is a bantam hen, has been officially crowned by the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's oldest living chicken. For more, we have reached out to Marcy Parker Darwin, who is Peanut's guardian. Hi there, and welcome. Thank you very much. This is really fun. Uh, it is indeed. I want to start at the other end of Peanut's life, which I gather was not easy. Describe how you first met her. Um, yes, I found her egg in an abandoned nest. Her mother had hatched several chicks and was busy with them, and the egg was cold, and I assumed dead. So I walked down to our pond to pitch it in the water where it wouldn't attract animals. And just as I was about to pitch it into the water, I thought I heard a noise and I held the egg up to my ear and sure enough, the egg was chirping. And against all odds, because I'm sure it had been sitting in the nest for at least a day, it was cold to the touch, but somebody was alive and well inside and so I just decided I had to peel it out, and so that you I did. the egg, huh? Yep. She was kind of a wrinkled up, little wadded up mess in my hand, and I couldn't believe that she was moving and alive, and I didn't think she had much of a chance, which to me is so ironic, you know, then, uh, yeah. and then she lives all these years. Yeah. But, <laughs> so I guess, I don't know, it just means we have to give everybody a chance. I don't know, but. <sighs> How does one go about proving to Guinness record keepers that you have the world's oldest living chicken? Well, I take a lot of pictures. Obviously, I guess they had to give me a little benefit of the doubt because how do you prove that all those pictures are the same chicken? She has some speckles and she's a golden brown. So she was very distinctive looking and with a black tail. I took pictures from day one practically, but through the years, 
and I photographed her with my nieces and nephews that love to hold her. She loves to be held, so she's she's just really an attention monger. So um, <laughs> I had a lot of pictures of a lot of people holding her, including a friend of ours who moved out to California for 18 years, and when he came back, he could not believe that Peanut was still alive. I bet. Because she seemed to recognize him and jumped right up on him like she always did. And then I have a picture that was marked on the back, three-year-old Maya with three-year-old Peanut. And Maya is now in the Army in her 20s. So things like that. So you can see all these all these children getting older in the pictures and the chickens. Right, still right. Chicken, and still Peanut there. just kind of stayed the same. Yeah. I mentioned that Peanut is the oldest living chicken. The record of oldest ever is held by a chicken named Muffy, who was 23 when she died back in 2011. Where would you rate the chances of Peanut um, holding on and breaking that record? I'm hoping. (laughs) I'm really hoping. Um, She doesn't show, I mean, she's arthritic. She, She dotters around a bit. And she falls over now and then, but so do I, you know. So um, (laughs) I I think she's going to be fine. She just loves all this attention. She makes a lot of noises. And um, I have a parrot that calls her name Peanut when she's in the living room, and she jerks her head around. She knows who she is. And I have high hopes that she may hang on for a while. Well, I, for one, will be rooting for her and for you. (laughs) Thank you. We've been speaking with Marcy Parker Darwin of Darwin's Eden, a farm in Waterloo, Michigan. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. The good news over at Fenway Park is that it's only the fourth inning. The bad is that the Sox are being bashed by Houston. It's now 7-0 Astros. Tonight, the New England Revolution hosts the New York Red Bulls in Foxborough. Kickoff time is 7.30. Boston will soon be getting a women's pro hockey team. The newly formed professional women's hockey league says Boston will get to one of its first six teams. The Boston team's name and host rink have yet to be announced. In the forecast, today is ending a lot brighter than the way it began. A lot drier, too. Should stay clear, dry overnight tonight. Temperatures about 60 at the lowest. And for tomorrow, a nice day, sunny skies. Same thing for Friday and maybe sunshine through the Labor Day weekend with highs tomorrow and Friday in the 70s. Could make it to the 80s over the weekend. 76 degrees now in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. Long after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu succeeded in passing his massive judicial reform law, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still protesting what they see as a threat to Israeli democracy and their personal freedom. Now, those protests are including the rights of Arab Israelis, too. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Idalia is no longer a hurricane after making landfall this morning in Florida as a major Category 3 storm. 
It's now a tropical storm centered over southeastern Georgia and moving northeast toward the Carolinas. President Biden spoke to reporters earlier today about the situation, urging residents to remain vigilant in the wake of power outages, downed trees, and flooded roadways. The impacts of this storm are being felt throughout the southeast, even as it moves up the eastern coast of the United States, affecting Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. And we have to remain vigilant, and there's much more to do. More than 400,000 customers in Georgia and Florida lost power as the storm snapped trees and turned roadways into rivers. The Florida County Sheriff, where Idalia made landfall, says no deaths or serious injuries have been reported so far. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he's marshalling a full-scale emergency response as Hurricane, or now Idalia, sweeps across that state. The storm hit Georgia this morning. It's expected to move into the Carolinas later tonight. Here's Sam Greenglass. Tens of thousands of Georgians are without power as Idalia marches across southeast Georgia and up the coast. In front of a bank of monitors with radar and live cams, Kemp said the storm is expected to weaken. It does not mean that there are not trees coming down late this afternoon, early this evening in places like Savannah. Uh, power lines coming down. It's still a very dangerous situation that people need to prepare for as the storm moves through the state. Kemp says the state patrol, Georgia Guard, forestry and search and rescue teams are in position with tarps, meal kits and water. Some places are seeing wind gusts up to 90 miles per hour and can expect 9 to 10 inches of rain. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR. A special court in Pakistan has extended former Prime Minister Imran Khan's incarceration over allegations he violated the country's Official Secrets Act from Islamabad. Abdul Sattar has more. The hearing of the case was held inside the attack jail for security reasons. Former Foreign Minister Shah Mahmood Qureshi is also an accused in the case. Khan's lawyer, Sher Afzal Marwat, says Khan's demand has been extended until September 13. Marwat says that the trial in jail and appointment of the special court's judge are illegal and have been challenged in a higher court. The former prime minister is facing charges in around 180 cases, including sedition, terrorism and blasphemy. For NPR News, I am Abdul Sattar in Islamabad. Millions more workers would be entitled to overtime pay under a new Biden administration proposal that would require employers to pay overtime to so-called white-collar workers who earn less than $55,000 a year. The new proposal revives an Obama-era policy that was ultimately defeated in court. It would make 3.6 million more Americans eligible for overtime pay, particularly in the retail, food, manufacturing, and hospitality industries. The rule also proposes automatic increases to those salaries every three years. On Wall Street, stocks finish modestly higher today. The Dow gained 37 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council is acting on Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to ban tents from part of the city known as Mass and Cass. At this afternoon's meeting, Council President Ed Flynn sent the proposal to a committee that will hold a public hearing on the measure. The mayor's proposal would require that police gave, give people who live at Mass and Cass notice about having to remove their tents. The city would also offer alternative shelter and storage of their belongings. For the first time since the start of the pandemic, Boston Public Schools have a full staff of bus drivers. 
The school's transportation head, Dan Rosengard, tells WBR's Radio Boston that the number of drivers the city lost to retirement or lost to the private sector left a shortage for the schools over the past few years. But he says the district now has enough standby bus drivers to fill any gaps. Our aim is to have enough of those drivers on hand where if a bus is running late in the afternoon, we want to be able to deploy a standby driver to go cover that second trip in the afternoon. In these past few years, we have not been in a point where we're able to do that. Last year, Boston schools launched a program to pay for commercial driver's license certification to boost the hiring pool. Some streets around Harvard Square and Cambridge remain closed after a manhole fire broke out this morning. The explosion at the manholes on Brattle Street closed Harvard Square to traffic and most foot traffic earlier today. JFK Street has reopened now. There are no injuries reported, but the explosion drove up carbon monoxide levels at several businesses in the area, forcing them to close. No cause has yet been determined. Hurricane Adalia is affecting travel here in Boston. So far, high winds and rain from the storm have led to 41 flight cancellations and nearly 240 delays in and out of Logan Airport. One day after the New England Patriots cut back quarterbacks Bailey Zappi and Malik Cunningham, both are returning to the Pats practice squad. But the Pats still don't have a backup quarterback for Mac Jones on the 53-man active roster. Patriots open the regular season September 10th in Foxborough against the Philadelphia Eagles. Socks are being blanked at Fenway Park right now. It's a 7-0 Astros in the fifth inning. We'll have a rare super blue moon rising in the sky shortly after 8.30 tonight. Should be a beautiful night for moon watching. Clear, breezy, temperatures about 60 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday, plenty of sunshine. Highs in the low to mid-70s tops. 75 degrees now in Boston at 537. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. More than half the wetlands in the U.S. no longer have federal protections under the EPA. The Environmental Protection Agency announced new rules this week to comply with the Supreme Court ruling that limited the scope of the Clean Water Act. Marla Stelk is the executive director of the National Association of Wetland Managers, and she's here to explain. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. At the most basic level, what does this new rule mean? What this rule means is that a significant number of wetlands and headwater streams are going to be losing protection from the Environmental Protection Agency, leaving a huge burden on states and tribal governments to fill what we're calling this gap in protections for these really important wetland and water systems. In theory, this change will make it easier for developers to build in areas that were once protected. In practice, do you expect to see that happening right away? Absolutely. After the Trump administration enacted the navigable waters protection rule, states reported that in some places a doubling of the number of permit applications coming across their desks. We expect this to happen as well now that the Sackett decision has come through and the... Sackett is the name of the Supreme Court ruling, Sackett versus EPA. Correct. 
So now that the final rule has been announced, we expect to see something similar happen. And what's even a little bit more terrifying is that even fewer wetlands and headwater streams are going to receive protection now than they had under the Trump administration. This rule change covers waters and wetlands all over the United States. But I want to ask you specifically about coastal wetlands and estuaries, because they provide such an important buffer against storms like the hurricane that the southeast is dealing with right now. What would development of those areas mean for climate resilience? It'd be devastating. Those wetland systems on those tidal areas protect a tremendous amount of land and infrastructure from damaging winds and storm surges and waves coming in from some of these hurricanes. And as we see significant precipitation events increasing in intensity, the ability for those systems to hold back the impacts from those storms and to absorb the excess stormwater is tenuous at best. The EPA basically said in so many words, we didn't want to do this, but our hands were tied. The Supreme Court said we had to. Do you think that's right? I do. I do believe that 100 percent. We've seen the definition of the waters of the U.S. ping pong back and forth for several years now. And much of this is due to the partisan situation that we're in in D.C. when we have different administrations coming in with significantly different priorities. And when we see what's going on in Congress, EPA is in reaction mode constantly. Our partners at EPA truly value clean water and healthy communities. I do feel that their hands are tied at this point. It's very unfortunate. You're executive director of the National Association of Wetland Managers. You've obviously devoted your life and career to wetlands specifically. What makes this particular kind of ecosystem so special? They clean water, they recharge our water supplies, they reduce flood risk, they provide fish and wildlife habitat, but they also provide recreational opportunities. If you enjoy fishing and hunting, or even just going swimming in your local lake or in the ocean, those are all healthy and keep you healthy because of wetlands. I like to always compare wetlands to my big fat Greek wedding, where the father's walking around with a bottle of Windex he says, oh, you have acne on your face or have you cut on your hand? Whatever you have wrong with you, just let me know and I'll spray some Windex at it. You can say that about wetlands. Oh, you're having flooding issues. You have loss of wildlife or loss of biodiversity. Oh, you need clean water. Oh, you need drought protection, wildfire protection. Here, let me spray a wetland at that and it will help. Marla Stelk is executive director of the National Association of Wetland Managers. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Overnight, there was a coup, another one, in Africa, this time in the central African nation of Gabon. In what has become a well-worn script across the region, first came the early morning statement from military officers broadcast on national TV. Au nom du peuple gabonais et garant de la protection des institutions. They announced they had seized power, placed the president under house arrest after a questionable election. Then came the sporadic celebration on the streets, followed by an appeal to outside nations from the deposed president, Ali Bongo. I'm to send a message to all the friends that we have all over the world to tell them to make noise for the people here have arrested me. Okay, this is the eighth coup in the last three years in a former French colony in the region. And there are similarities, but also much that makes this coup different. NPR Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu is tracking things from Lagos, Nigeria. Hey there, Emmanuel. Hi. Hi. So it seems like every time I speak with you, it's been a bad day for another sitting leader of another 
African country. Catch us up on what is happening today in Gabon. Yes, today in Gabon, there's been elation in the capital, Libreville, people cheering soldiers and the apparent end of President Ali Bongo's government. You know, early this morning, the electoral body announced he'd won a controversial re-election, a third term, which surprised no one after so many irregularities and a lack of transparency. You know, the internet was cut during polling day on Saturday, supposedly to combat misinformation, according to the government. So when the results were announced, it had very little legitimacy. You know, soldiers, including members of his own elite presidential guard, executed a takeover that was likely pre-planned and arrested him. And the head of the presidential guard, who is also his cousin, will now head a new transition body in charge of the country. Hmm. Okay, so there were just elections. Now there is this apparent coup. We'll see if it sticks. What is the feeling among ordinary people in Gabon? Will they be sad if this does mean the end of the Bongo family's uh, turn in power? Well, Ali Bongo largely was an unpopular figure. You know, Gabon is notionally a democracy, but he's part of a family that have ruled this oil-rich, biodiverse country since 1967. You know, before he entered politics, he studied law, had a reputation for being a bit of a playboy and actually was a funk singer at one point, releasing an album in 1977, including this track. But eventually politics was a family business and he succeeded his father when he died in 2009 and his son was tipped to succeed him. Um, You know, this government has been accused of widespread corruption, theft, been re-elected in, you know, elections marred by irregularities like this last poll. And he's amassed wealth in the U.S. and France, uh, which is, you know, Gabon's former colonial ruler and a close ally of his. Uh, Meanwhile, a third of the country lives in poverty. You know, you mentioned the U.S. and France, and I do want you to step back for a second and just situate this among this this, uh, rash of coups uh, on the continent. Uh, Are the U.S. and its allies worried about a domino effect? Yes, the U.S. have said today it's concerned and condemned any efforts by military powers to take over by force. France, you know, a former colonial ruler, they've also condemned the coup. And and these countries and regional countries, they're going to have to contend with the reasons that led us here. You know, we now have a belt of countries right from the Atlantic to the Red Sea run by military governments. There's a crisis of trust in governments right across the region. And Nigeria's President Tinubu said today he spoke of coup contagion. And the conditions for that contagion appear to be major failings in the way these so-called democracies work. And Pierre's Emmanuel Akin Wotu updating us on the very fast moving developments underway in Gabon. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Wisconsin has become a key election battleground state. Four of the past six presidential races there were decided by less than a percentage point. Many people are watching the Milwaukee suburbs. They've historically voted Republican, but have been shifting towards Democrats over the last several years. NPR's Franco Ordonez checked in with suburban voters in Port Washington and asked how they're feeling about the current slate of Republican candidates. Matt Hermans and a buddy are at the marina in Port Washington, getting ready to take off on a 40-foot charter boat for an afternoon of fishing in Lake Michigan. Before they set off on a mission to catch as much Chinook salmon and rainbow trout as possible, 
I got them to take a moment to talk a little politics following the first Republican debate that took place in nearby Milwaukee. I've, I've split tickets most of my life, and I always try to find uh, a person or people that are most aligned with my own values. Port Washington is the county seat of Ozawaki County, once part of a deeply red suburban belt around Milwaukee that has been shifting purple. And Republicans here will need to stem the exodus of conservative voters if they want to win back the state that went to then-candidate Joe Biden by less than 25,000 votes. Herman's a tech inventor, likes what he hears from some of the other Republican candidates, but he says it's difficult to learn more about them because so much of the daily conversation is clouded by Trump. There are definitely a couple extremely intelligent candidates, but the Trump fiasco is, it distracts from reality, especially with all the legal things going on, because nobody knows what's really going to happen. Trump skipped the debate in Milwaukee, but that was okay with several of the voters enjoying their day on the water. Mary Flynn, a retired banker, is walking around the marina with a friend. She likes Trump and thinks he did a good job, but she says he's become too controversial and polarizing. We really need some new blood in there. Flynn thinks Ron DeSantis would have a better chance of beating Biden, but she's been disappointed by the Florida governor's performance on the national stage. He might be all right, but I, he's not, you know, loud enough to me. He's got to be more energetic. He seems laid back, and he's really got to sell himself, and he's not doing that. Her walking partner, Frank Benavuto, agrees, but he still thinks Trump will lead the ticket. And I think when push comes to shove, Trump is going to be the one again, and I'll vote for him. Trump still retains support from half of Republican voters overall, but he did see a slight decrease in that support after he skipped the Milwaukee debate, according to a new poll from Emerson College. And those persuadable voters live in places like Port Washington that are turning from red to purple. Voters like Claire Haran. We need a leader that is going to be, be the part of a president and he's certainly not showing that. He's got too much turmoil going on. Moran is walking her dog Bella around the marina. <laughs> you should hear her when she's sleeping. Moran says she's always voted Republican, but doesn't think she can vote Republican again if Trump is the nominee. I probably would not vote. I don't think Biden's going to get it. First of all, he's too old. He's very feeble. He's just not popular, and you know. She'd rather vote for DeSantis or Nikki Haley. And she's curious about Vivek Ramaswamy. But like so many of the others at the harbor, she doubts they can beat Trump. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Port Washington, Wisconsin. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News. And thanks a lot for being with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Georgia's oldest city and largest along the Atlantic coast are in a dahlia's path as the tropical storm works its way northeast. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for updates on the storm's progress and recovery efforts in Florida. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, where the greenhouse is full of fall-blooming annuals and perennials to brighten up your garden and porch. Visit volantefarms.com for hours. 
Red Sox are being walloped over at Fenway Park. It's now 7-0 Astros in the sixth inning. Overnight tonight should be a beautiful night. Clear skies for the super blue moon, about 60 degrees at the lowest. Tomorrow should start a string of beautiful days that could last into next month. Sunny skies tomorrow and Friday and maybe for the Labor Day weekend as well. Though we should have uh, highs in the 70s both tomorrow and Friday, and then the weekend could make it to the 80s. 74 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 551. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. An Italian rap star is using his fame to raise money and awareness for the thousands of migrants who make the dangerous journey from North Africa to Europe. I have friends, friends of friends who died in the Mediterranean Sea. So why is the Italian government blocking a boat he donated from saving drowning migrants? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tropical storm Idalia continues to churn its way across the southeastern U.S., flooding communities and wreaking havoc. The storm made landfall early this morning as a hurricane on Florida's Gulf Coast. That is after it went through what meteorologists call rapid intensification. And that is a term you might want to become familiar with. Nathan Rod of NPR's Climate Desk joins me. Hey, Nate. Hey, Mary Louise. Hey there. A little delay on your line, but we will work with it. So the term rapid intensification, this seems this seems intuitive. This is a storm that gets intense really fast, right? Yeah, it's a rare scientific term that kind of speaks for itself. So let's celebrate that. Uh, but there is also a technical definition for this too, and that's an increase of wind speed of at least 35 miles per hour in under 24 hours. Uh, Idalia went from a tropical storm over Cuba on Monday night to briefly a Category 4 hurricane last night. So we essentially saw an increase in wind speeds of about 55 miles per hour in a 24-hour window. So it's textbook rapid intensification. It's textbook. Is it normal? Normal to see a hurricane get so much stronger in such a short window? It's becoming normal. I uh, talked to Gabe Vecchi, Gabe Vecchi, I should say, a professor at Princeton University who focuses on hurricanes and climate earlier today. And he said that the term rapid intensification used to be pretty niche in his community. Because it was a very unlikely thing. It didn't happen very often. It has uh, unfortunately become a much more common occurrence. I think that for the past few years, there's been rapidly intensifying storms in the Atlantic. And so it, it's something that we should all familiarize ourselves with. And some of those storms he's alluding to there were some of the most destructive we've seen in the U.S. I mean, Hurricane Harvey in Houston, Hurricane Maria, which devastated parts of Puerto Rico, Hurricane Ian last year in Florida. You know, it's important to note here, Mary Louise, that even though wind speed is what determines what category a hurricane is, the thing that causes the most damage and deaths during a hurricane is almost always water, either rain or storm surge, like the kind we've seen hit big parts of Florida today. Uh, so just because a hurricane is a category one or a two, it doesn't mean it won't cause a lot of problems. Got it. OK, so I'm still trying to figure out what causes this, what causes rapid intensification. 
All right, so there's two major ingredients. The first is warm water. You know, think of warm water, hot water as kind of the fuel that powers a hurricane. Uh, I was just in the Florida Keys last week doing some other reporting, and I can tell you that the waters in the Gulf of Mexico are very hot. Uh, the other ingredient that's needed is wind. Basically, if there's strong upper-level winds, it can prevent a storm from intensifying, so you need less of that wind. And I have to ask, how much of all this is influenced by climate change? So any climate scientist, hurricane expert that you talk to will basically say we can't immediately say that a hurricane like Idalia is the direct result of human-caused climate change. Hurricanes happen. They happen before we started spewing planet warming gases into the atmosphere. They're going to continue. What we can definitively say is that the conditions which make rapid intensification more likely, specifically hot water temperatures, now exist more often because of our actions. All right. And Piers Nathan Rott from our Climate Desk reporting there. Thank you, Nate. Yeah, thank you, Mary Louise. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. For decades, gay men were banned from donating blood over fears they'd spread HIV. But this year, federal officials updated the guidelines, and one of the first to roll up his sleeves in Massachusetts was the state's public health commissioner, Dr. Robbie Goldstein. WBR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports that he pushed for the change. The morning after the mass shooting at a gay club in Orlando in 2016, Dr. Robbie Goldstein watched the news and cried. He wanted to do something, like donate blood, but... As a gay man, he wasn't allowed. I thought about that after the Boston Marathon bombing when I couldn't donate. I've certainly thought about it during the COVID pandemic when blood supplies have been incredibly low. Federal guidelines put in place during the HIV epidemic in the 1980s banned men who have sex with men from giving blood. Goldstein is an infectious disease physician. He spent almost a decade pushing to lift those restrictions. He dug into data and published a scientific paper working with his longtime friend and mentor, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She led the CDC for two years and brought Goldstein on as her senior advisor. Closer to the seat of power, they advocated for change. We saw it as a policy that had a place in history, but now it just doesn't fit with the science. Donated blood is already tested for diseases, including HIV, and in May, federal officials dropped the ban. They said blood donors should be screened based on their behavior and risk of HIV, not their sexual orientation. Walensky watched as the Red Cross updated its guidelines this month. You do a lot of work on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the people of Massachusetts, and you don't necessarily always see it pay off with such a tangible outcome. So it was really fulfilling to see this one happen. For Goldstein, the policy change is deeply personal. I want to give back, and now finally I can. Yesterday, Goldstein and Molensky met at the Red Cross Donation Center in Dedham and gave blood side by side. I'm nervous about my iron level. I'm nervous <laughs> that I didn't drink enough water, um, but I'm really excited to do this. Goldstein says the new blood donation rules are rooted in evidence, but may need to change in the future as science advances. Policy can take a long time, and that is a lesson that I learned through this. But if you um, continue to go back to the science and you keep pushing, things can happen. He says the new guidelines could allow as many as 5 million more people to donate blood. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Theal-McCluskey.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Policy Genius, committed to simplifying the process of getting life insurance by providing quotes from multiple companies side by side, including options that don't require a medical exam. Learn more at policygenius.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are finally on the board at Fenway Park. It's now 7-3 Houston in the bottom of the six over at Fenway. Sox just scored another run. This is the final game of their three-game series. Tonight, the New England Revolution hosts the New York Red Bulls at Foxborough. Kickoff time tonight is 7.30. Should be a beautiful night tonight. Breezy, temperatures about 60 degrees. Sunshine's back tomorrow. Should last the entire day, in fact. High temperatures in the low to mid-70s. Pretty much the same thing for Friday. And then a lovely Labor Day weekend coming up. Sunny skies, as of right now anyway, with temperatures making it to the 80s. It's 5.59. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hurricane Idalia is now Tropical Storm Idalia, and it's threatening parts of Georgia and the Carolinas after it pummeled parts of Florida. The storm had whipping 70-mile-an-hour winds and was roughly 40 miles west of Savannah, Georgia, earlier this hour. We'll have the latest on this Wednesday, August 30th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, when hurricanes approach landfall, authorities have to decide whether to issue evacuation orders and when. How do they do it? We have good basic information about populations, evacuation times, what the roads will do. What we have to also factor in is human behavior. Also in our climate change series, heat waves across the U.S. have somewhat spared New England, but the effects of heat are still a big concern. We'll hear about how an innovative project is aimed at helping those most at risk. It's 6.01. Headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has approved a disaster declaration for Florida after Hurricane Idalia made landfall as a Category 3 storm. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports. President Biden said he's getting regular updates on the hurricane's path and any damage. He's also pre-positioned federal resources, including 1,500 federal personnel and 900 Coast Guard to Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas. At a briefing on the federal response to Hurricane Adalia and ongoing efforts in Maui, Biden said he's promised to provide governors whatever their state's needs. I don't think anybody can deny the impact of the climate crisis anymore. Just look around. The White House said FEMA Administrator Deanne Krizel will travel to hurricane-ravaged areas tomorrow to meet with officials and assess urgent needs. 
Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Idalia has now been downgraded to a tropical storm and continues its rapid track across Georgia to the Atlantic coast. It's leaving down trees and power lines in its wake. Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting has more. Karen Clements Seward said she lost power around 10 a.m. to her home in the middle of 44 acres of pine forest near the Florida border, about 20 miles west of Interstate 75. The wind was taking pine trees, too. My husband saw one drop, and I just heard the second one drop about 10 feet from our barn. (laughs) The barn is the one spot Seward says she and her husband didn't thin the trees. But they could already see an upside to Idalia. The six inches of rain on the property so far means a pond that had dried up to dregs in the recent heat was already almost full again. Georgia's Emergency Management Agency says work to clear roads and restore power could begin in South Georgia as soon as the wind drops below 35 miles an hour. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. More than 3.5 million workers would be newly eligible for overtime pay under a proposed rule from the Biden administration. Here's NPR Scott Horsley. The proposed rule says anyone making less than $55,000 a year should be paid time and a half when they work more than 40 hours a week. The current threshold is about $35,000. Many retail and fast food managers earning just over that amount are denied overtime pay even when they work long hours. The Labor Department had ordered a similar increase during the Obama administration, but it was halted by a federal judge. The Trump administration then crafted its own rule, setting a much lower salary threshold at which workers are exempt from overtime. Under the new proposal, the threshold would be adjusted automatically every three years to keep pace with rising wages. Employers and others now have 60 days in which to comment on the proposal. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Another apparent public incidence of confusion on the part of Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. The 81-year-old McConnell was asked whether he'd run for re-election in 2026. Senator asked the reporter to repeat the question before trailing off and staring straight ahead. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey fielded questions this afternoon about outgoing Transportation Secretary Gina Fiandaka's sudden resignation this week. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. The governor appeared alongside Fiandaka after touring repair work being completed at the Sumner Tunnel. Healy deflected questions about if she had fired Fiandaka after only seven months in the role. Secretary Fiandaka came to the decision, and uh, again, we make forward. We, we look forward to supporting her in the next chapter, as I know she will continue to support us. And again, I'm proud of the accomplishments that we made uh, collectively over the last seven months. Healy thanked the secretary and others for their work keeping the Sumner project on schedule. The tunnel will reopen to general traffic on Friday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The Healy administration put out a request for proposals for its fourth and largest offshore wind project. It's looking for 3,600 megawatts of energy generated by offshore wind power. That's enough for a quarter of the state's annual electricity demand. Bids are due at the end of January. An offshore wind developer is trying to scrap its initial plans for a wind farm off Martha's Vineyard. South Coast Wind is offering to pay utilities $60 million to terminate its current contracts. The company says the project is no longer viable under the current contract terms due to economic changes. The State Department of Public Utilities needs to approve the termination of contracts. Another company, Commonwealth Wind, had its contract termination agreement approved by state regulators last week. The state is making more than $31 million in climate resiliency funds available to help communities combat climate change. 
Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll announced the funding today in Stockbridge. She says Western Mass was hit especially hard this year by heavy rain and flooding, and local governments know best what their communities need. Green infrastructure installation, open space preservation, tree planting, hooray, who loves trees? We all do, right? Heat mitigation, among many others. And frankly, communities know how to do this best. A total of 79 projects in 56 communities are being funded through the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program. And the MBTA's Green Line extension to Union Square in Somerville will temporarily close next month. The Transportation Department says the Union Square branch will close September 18th for 25 days so crews can repair the Squires Bridge. There won't be shuttle buses, so riders are encouraged to take one of four regular buses. Red Sox bats are finally working over at Fenway Park. Sox are still behind the Astros. It's now 7-4 to four in the sixth inning. In the forecast tonight, a beautiful, clear, breezy night for watching the super blue full moon or the super moon that's also a blue moon. Temperatures about 60 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday, plenty of sunshine. Highs in the low to mid-70s tops. It's 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How do you make a life-changing or possibly life-saving decision to leave where you live? Well, that's a choice many people have had to make in Florida this week as Hurricane Idalia bore down on the state before it made landfall early this morning. Well, I'm I'm afraid we won't have a business to go back to when we go down there to check out the damage. That is Daniel Hicks, who did heed an evacuation order that was mandatory. He owns a fishing and vacation rental in Horseshoe Beach, south of where the storm made landfall in the early hours of the morning. I had no hesitation in leaving. No, we, we knew the storm was going to be bad. So we were packing things up and securing things there to prepare for the storm. But other residents have hesitated. Joshua Keith of Panacea, Florida, was under a voluntary evacuation order before Adalia made landfall. When our All Things Considered producers asked if he'd left his home? No, I did not because I'm, you know, I'm in decent health and I watch the tides and you know, where the hurricane's going to hit and all that. And as for why he stuck around? I don't let fear make my decisions for me. I study and make an educated uh, choice to go or stay. Tara Rawson owns farmland in Mayo, Florida. That's a bit more inland from the Gulf Coast. It was still in the hurricane's path, and she also decided to stay put. We are Floridians, and we are, you know, used to hurricanes. She's aware of the risks of staying. I feel like it's a complete miracle that every everybody is good and safe. Back in Panacea, Joshua Keith says the unpredictability of a storm's path and keeping up with the flood of information that can come from news and government officials can make decisions on whether to evacuate even more difficult. People could be educated better on how to understand what's actually going to occur in your area versus someplace that's like 80 miles from here that's getting hit harder. 
Well, hearing from Florida residents about their decisions prompted me to wonder, how do authorities make the call over whether, over when to issue an evacuation order? To help answer that, let's bring in former FEMA administrator Craig Fugate. We have caught him in Gainesville, Florida. Mr. Fugate, I hope you are surviving the, the wind and storm down there. Yeah, we didn't get near the damage they're seeing in other parts of the state. Yeah. So walk me through the process for people who are in parts of the state where the storm has hit or maybe about to hit. How do you decide when to tell people you got to go, you got to go now? Well, it's based upon a lot of work we do outside of hurricane season. The National Weather Service, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA work very closely with states to establish areas that are vulnerable from storm surge. Mm -hmm. Uh, They map out the communities, how many people live there, the road networks and how long it would take for people to get out of those areas when they say it's time to go. They use the term clearance time, but it's really from the time they make a decision to the last car is to safety. Yeah. Uh, And they factor in traffic's going to be bad. They're going to factor in, you know, that this is going to take time and how far people need to go. And so that's what they're doing. They have their tables built based upon their population. You know, some of these small towns, they can evacuate in less than 12 hours. You know, some of our communities like the Florida Keys could take two days to evacuate. Each one of these communities have this information that's been provided by FEMA and the Weather Service and Hurricane Center to provide that. So they're watching storms. When they get that information, they know they have to make a decision. How accurate a science is it? Well, I think there's a tendency when you see all this data, you think there's a lot of precision. And the reality is we have good basic information about populations, evacuation times, what the roads will do. What we have to also factor in is human behavior. People tend not to want to evacuate at three o'clock in the morning. So they do better when they have time, it's daylight. And I think that's one of our challenges because people are saying, hey, the sun's shining. I don't see any problem. Why should I go now? That's what I think the challenge is to communicate. In some of our communities, it takes more than a day to evacuate. And if people don't go when that sun is shining, if they wait for the storm to get there, it may be too late. It may be too late. I'm looking county by county in Florida. Um, Some of them, Pasco County, Gulf County, to name a couple, they have mandatory evacuation orders for some residents, voluntary for others. How do you make that call? Well, they look at what are the likely impacts. Uh, So again, uh, these evacuation zones are not just one. They're based upon different levels of storm surge. And parts of the counties have very distinct geographical areas that will flood very easily and don't flood hardly at all. So you just don't want to say everybody's got to go. You want to say who's at the greatest risk. Yeah. But and the reality is when I hear the word evacuation, I don't really hear mandatory or, or voluntary. I hear evacuation the higher ground. Yeah. Um, yesterday on this program, we heard from one guy, a business owner in St. Petersburg Beach. We caught him as he was filling up sandbags. He said, look, in the past, I have heated evacuation orders. And when I came back, my neighborhood was fine. It was bone dry. So this time I'm going to stay put. How do you weigh the risk of crying wolf? Well, this is the challenge because the area of impact could be hundreds of miles, yet we know that the greatest impacts will be where that center of circulation crosses for storm surge. And if you wait too long till you're certain, you run out of time. And in many cases, it's, uh, you know, historically less than 25% of the areas that 
are put into evacuation orders actually get the devastating damages. But if we got to go earlier, there's going to be less precision in the forecast. If we wait till we have certainty, it will be too late. Have you learned anything from your years in this business in terms of helping people to evacuate? I'm thinking there are plenty of people who are in hurricane-prone areas who may hear an evacuation order and just be stubborn. No, I'm not going. But a lot of people have reasons not to evacuate. Maybe they don't have anywhere to go or they don't have money to finance this or they face language barriers, all kinds of things. Yeah, this goes back to what we do before storms and, and again, working with uh, local and state uh, agencies to make sure that there are plans in place for people who don't have transportation. You know, people say I don't have money for a hotel or motel. Well, we understand that. That's why you know we're opening up the public shelters. Uh, but I think what we need to understand is it's important that we give them clear information. And I think we sometimes sanitize the terms. We talk about storm surge. Most people, if they haven't been through it, have no earthly idea what that means. They think it's like a high tide. The way people die in storm surge is they drown or they're crushed by debris like cars and boats and other large objects battering their homes. And that's the risk. This isn't about, you know, we're trying to you know, use all this nice government uh, terminology. It's like we need to tell people you drown or you're crushed if you're in these areas when the storm hits and you didn't get out in time. I'm sure it's such a fine line, though, between being, as you put it, brutally honest and not wanting to sow panic. I haven't seen this ever so panicked. I think that's the most overrated risk that people are afraid we're going to panic people. And quite honestly, I'd like to get some people panicked to get them out of these areas so they don't drown. That is former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate speaking with us from Gainesville, Florida. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Narcan will be available over-the-counter at U.S. pharmacies as soon as next week. That's the nasal spray that can reverse an overdose. The company that makes the drug is shipping it out today. From member station WBUR, Deborah Becker reports it's the first time Narcan will be available nationwide without a prescription. The company that makes Narcan, Emergent Biosolutions, is shipping out hundreds of thousands of two-dose packages for over-the-counter and online sales. Emergent Senior Vice President Paul Williams says this follows FDA approval of over-the-counter Narcan sales to try to stem rising overdose deaths. When you think about the opioid crisis continuing to get worse, the number of opioid-related deaths continuing to increase, especially in the last couple of years, expanding access for Narcan to be much broader to folks is critically important. Narcan is the brand name for the drug naloxone, which can reverse an opioid overdose in minutes. Generic versions of naloxone are expected in stores next year. Major retailers Walgreens, Rite Aid, and CVS Health all say Narcan will be available in their stores and online in September. They also say pharmacists will be on hand to explain how to identify an overdose and when to administer the spray. The suggested price for consumers for a two-dose carton is $44.99, a price that some say is expensive. Sheila Vicaria is with the Drug Policy Alliance. For some people, $44 is a small price to pay to have access to the medication, but there are, of course, going to be people for whom $44 is out of reach. The suggested price is less for purchasers in the so-called public interest market, such as municipalities and nonprofits that distribute narcotics 
Narcan to the public for free. An FDA study says in 2021, most of the 17 million doses of naloxone that were distributed in the U.S. were by non-retail groups. Kevin Roy with Shatterproof, a national nonprofit fighting addiction, says free doses are still needed. We can't make the mistake of assuming that the problem is solved because it's available over the counter. So it is a tool in in the toolbox to solving the crisis, but it certainly is not the only one that's important. Roy also says resources are still needed for addiction medication and treatment. Before this, Narcan was available only by prescription, although some states allowed it to be sold at pharmacy counters at a customer's request. Some insurers say they will still cover the cost of the spray. Last year, the U.S. set a record reporting more than 109,000 opioid overdose deaths. For NPR News, I'm Deborah Becker in Boston. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for joining us. Coming up on Marketplace at 6.30, shipments of solar panels to the U.S. reached record highs last year, and the panels are getting cheaper. A look at what's happening in solar power across the country. Coming up, business news again starts at 6.30. It was an up day on Wall Street today. The Dow gained a tenth of a percent. S&P rose nearly four-tenths of a percent to finish above 4,500. The Nasdaq picked up more than a half percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Over at Fenway Park right now, Red Sox are still losing, but they've gained a bit on the Astros. It's 7-4 now in the bottom of the seventh inning. Gillette Stadium will host the Premier Lacrosse League quarterfinals on Labor Day Monday. The winner of each game will advance to the semifinals on Long Island in New York September 10th. This is the second consecutive year Gillette will host the Premier League Lacrosse on Labor Day. In the forecast Look for clear skies tonight. Should be a lovely night for moon watching. Temperatures right about 60 degrees. Then for tomorrow, look for sunshine. Friday as well, look for temperatures in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 621. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Biden administration is trying to fundamentally shift how the federal government allocates money for things like clean energy, transit, and affordable housing. The goal is to direct that funding specifically to communities facing high levels of pollution and health problems. 
So how do agencies determine who qualifies? Well, some researchers and advocates are concerned that the government is ignoring one of the most relevant criteria. NPR's Shema Byram is here with us to explain. Hi, Shema. Hi, Ari. So what is the Biden administration's goal here? So, Ari, there are a handful of new laws focused on climate initiatives and infrastructure. And together, they include a ton of money for things like clean transit, affordable housing, and clean energy development. And the Biden administration wants to make sure that money goes to the places that need it the most. These are communities that may live near polluting industries or have higher rates of asthma, in part because of that pollution. It also means communities that are at most risk from the effects of climate change, like flood or wildfire risks. So we're talking billions of dollars. uh, And one big question is, how do you figure out which communities qualify? So how is the administration determining which communities should benefit? So the administration's actually developed this tool. It's called the Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool. And basically, it's an interactive map. Anyone can go onto this map online, um, and you can plug in an address or zip code, and it spills out all of the data. For example, I searched for Binghamton, New York, where I grew up. I could see how income and rates of asthma and life expectancy were really different depending on where you lived in the city. The map also includes a ton of other stuff, like the share of homes that are likely to have lead paint in them, or access to transit or amount of green space. Agencies are supposed to use all these different indicators to decide where to target their funding. But one indicator they aren't taking into account is race. And researchers and advocates say that's a blind spot. Right. I know from NPR's own reporting that black and brown communities in the U.S. tend to bear the brunt of environmental and health risks. That's exactly right. Here's Ana Baptista. She teaches environmental policy at the New School. Race, even more so than income, um, tends to be a driving factor in disparities of environmental pollution. For instance, studies have shown that Black Americans suffer disproportionately from air pollution regardless of their income level. That's because many of these health and environmental problems are a direct result of racist housing policies that mean Black communities are more likely to be located near polluting highways or industries. Advocates say it's a mistake to try to address and fix those historical wrongs without taking race into account. Here's Manuel Salgado from We Act for Environmental Justice. I think trying to account for the problems that race and racism have caused in this nation without addressing, uh, without acknowledging race is like trying to solve it with two arms tied behind your back. And a recent study found that if you use this tool without taking race into account, you may not be able to address these disparities or could even make them worse. If the experts seem to agree that race is an important factor to consider, why isn't the federal government doing it? Basically, they're worried about legal challenges. The U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that affirmative action in universities is illegal, which makes many people worry that any government program that takes race into account could be legally challenged. When I asked the administration about this, they gave me a written statement saying that they acknowledge that communities of color suffer disproportionately from environmental and health burdens. And they think this tool will still direct resources into the communities that need it most, even if it doesn't explicitly take race into account. Now, legal scholars I spoke to say the White House isn't wrong to worry, but it sets a concerning precedent. Here's Alatunde Johnson at Columbia Law School. Caring about racial inequality is not unconstitutional. Um, And there's um, nothing in the opinions that say that. Johnson says she understands the administration's worries, but there's nothing yet legally preventing the government from considering race. Sure, they might face lawsuits if they do, 
but communities of color could lose out on their share of these historic investments if they don't. That's NPR's Shema Byram. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ari. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This summer, New England hasn't seen the kind of heat waves that have gripped other parts of the country. But even moderately hot days can affect our health. An innovative pilot project is trying to address the problem by sending heat alert emails to health clinics in Massachusetts and six other states. WBR's Martha Biebinger reports as part of our series with the New England News Collaborative, Beyond Normal. In Boston, the first heat alert popped into inboxes on June 1st. It was 83 degrees that day, still not hot enough to trigger an official heat warning. But in Boston, when temperatures rise past the mid-70s, heat-related hospitalizations and deaths rise too. Dr. Rebecca Rogers, a primary care physician at Cambridge Health Alliance, says it's particularly dangerous early in what doctors call the heat season. People are quite vulnerable because their bodies haven't yet adjusted to heat. For Rogers, that first email, and another that arrived as temperatures rose in July, bumped heat to the forefront of her conversations in the exam room. And the emails suggest Rogers prioritize heat planning with specific patients. Older individuals, outdoor workers, individuals with chronic medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. Also young athletes training on sweltering fields and people without air conditioning. Okay. You go straight through there. Her patient, Luciano Gomez, works construction. If you were getting too hot at work and maybe starting to get sick, do you know some things to look out for? No. So Rogers describes signs of heat exhaustion, dizziness, weakness, and sweating a lot. She hands Gomez some tip sheets she got with the email alerts. On one, a color band from pale yellow to dark gold is a sort of urine hydration barometer. So if your pee is dark like this, during the day when you're at work, probably means you need to drink more water. An interpreter translates into Portuguese for Gomez, who's from Brazil. He knows heat, but he has questions about staying hydrated. Because here I've been addicted to soda. I'm trying to change to sparkling water, but I don't have too much knowledge on how much I can take of it. Yeah. Sparkling water, you know, it's fine. As long as it doesn't have sugar, it's totally good. Rogers has her own questions. Should patients taking meds that make them pee more often take less of the drug when it's hot? There's no firm answer yet. And Rogers knows that being unable to cool down overnight can trigger a health crisis. But she isn't sure how to help patients who cannot afford an air conditioner or who don't have stable housing. Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States. This is Dr. Caleb Dresser, one of the people who sends the alerts. And it is set to be an increasing problem in the years to come as a result of climate change. Dresser works out of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Weather expertise comes from Climate Central, an independent source of climate science. Staff at 12 community health centers around the country are receiving alerts tailored to their location. In Portland, Oregon, for example, an early heat wave triggered an alert on May 14th. For the rest of the summer, alerts will only go out on the most excessively hot and humid days, so they don't become too routine. Andrew Pershing is with Climate Central. So what we're just trying to say is, like, you really need to go into heat mode now. Pershing and colleagues are tweaking the language of alerts this summer, 
looking for messages that will change behavior. Because studies show many people don't take heat warnings seriously. Ashley Ward studies heat policy at Duke and says that has to change. This is not your grandmother's heat. So we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. The pilot has limitations. Most clinicians are only discussing heat with patients who have appointments. They don't have a way to flag their higher risk patients or send them individual alerts at home. That's one possible improvement researchers may explore before next summer rolls around. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England all this week here on All Things Considered and on WBUR's Morning Edition. You can also check it out at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. GoodNewsGarage.org.